Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, a long night at a house party in Detroit ends in horror when during the early hours of the morning, someone enters with a gun. Welcome to episode 20 of They Walk Among America. A joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. At approximately 5 a.m. on Saturday, May 25, 2019, two 911 calls came in to the Detroit Dispatch Center reporting a shooting involving multiple casualties. Matthews told the dispatcher that he was in the basement with his friend Timothy Blancher, who had been shot in the chest. Armand was instructed to keep firm pressure on his friend's wound with both hands until help arrived. Around this time, another call came in from the same house. Clifton Keyes, who goes by the name Blair, tells dispatchers that two of his friends had been shot and were losing a lot of blood. His friends Paris Cameron and Alonte Davis were severely injured and lying on the floor. Both callers said that someone had come into the house and began shooting. Police officers arrived at the scene within minutes and were flagged down by one of the callers standing at the front of the house. The property at 3474 Devonshire Road was under construction. As officers stepped inside with their guns drawn, 
they could see that the chaotic scene in the dining area was not due to renovations. Two people were slumped against a wall next to a card table. Officer Amit Ferizovich and his partner Officer Blackburn immediately called for paramedics to be dispatched. Another officer arrived at the same time, Officer Janelle Thomas. They were unsure if the shooter was still inside the home when they heard noises in the basement. The officer shouted out a warning. Almon Matthews called out as he was helping his friend who had been shot, before complying with an order from the officers to raise his hands. Armon and Blair Keyes were escorted from the residence while paramedics assessed the extent of the injuries to the wounded. Sadly, both Alante Davis and Timothy Blanchard died at the scene. Paris Cameron was taken to St. John's Hospital by ambulance in critical condition. While the emergency responders cordoned off the scene, two men pulled up in a car. Lance Atterbury and Brendan Suttles had been at the house earlier that night. It was Lance Atterbury's home. While the witnesses were in shock, they were able to give the police statements, which helped the officers piece together the events and learn exactly what transpired that night. On Friday, May 24th, Lance Atterbury hosted a party at his home on Devonshire Road. Throughout the night there had been between 10 to 15 people in attendance, but as the party wound down, seven party-goers stayed on to continue the celebrations. This included Alante Davis, Timothy Blanchard, Paris Cameron, Blair Keyes, Armon Matthews, Brendan Suttles, and Lance Atterbury, who were all drinking and listening to music. Some of them had been partying on the next street at around 10.30pm that night. Neighbours asked them to turn the music down, but when they did not listen, a warning shot was fired into the air. They moved the party back inside Lance Atterbury's home. At around 2.40am, Blair, Timothy, Alante, Armin and Paris drove to a BP gas station on the corner of Buckingham, less than a quarter of a mile away. The group did not feel comfortable walking the short distance on the east side of Detroit. Paris was a transgender woman with a group of gay men. Paris and Alante went inside the gas station and Paris began to flirt with one of the other customers. She told him she and her friends were having a party over on Devonshire and that he should join them. Paris and Alante then got back into the car with their friends and left. They drove around for a few minutes to look for a wallet Blair had lost at some point that night before returning to Lance Atterbury's home. As they pulled up, they saw the man from the gas station walking towards them. Paris Cameron was excited that he had taken her up on the offer to join them and brought him inside. Armand Matthews recognised the man as someone he had gone to school with. He did not know him well, but Armand knew his face and his name. 
Devon. Blackies later told the police that he sat outside in his car for a while before going back inside. He was frustrated that he had not found his wallet, and he was upset that Paris had informed a stranger in a gas station where they all were. When Blair went back inside the house, he could hear his friends giggling and making jokes about Devon, the man from the gas station, being a trade. This is a term used in the LGBTQ community to describe a gay male who tries to portray themselves as straight or hyper-masculine. Blair Keyes said that Devon had gone upstairs with Paris and a few of the men were sexually active with one another. Shortly after, a verbal argument broke out between Brendan Suttles and Armand Matthews. They'd been corresponding with each other in the days before the party. Brendan was upset that Armand seemed to be ignoring him, but Armand was too intoxicated to hold a proper conversation. Blair Keys and Brendan Suttles were also arguing before Brendan asked Lance Atterbury if he could take his car to go home. Lance agreed and accompanied Brendan on the journey. Lance was so drunk that he fell asleep. When Brendan Suttles got home, his mother refused to allow her son to bring a stranger into the house. So Brendan got back into the car and drove the 30-minute journey back to Devonshire. At the party, Blair Keyes recalled seeing the man from the gas station known as Devon exchange numbers with Paris Cameron. But while Paris seemed happy, Blair said Devon had a blank expression on his face. Armand Matthews heard Devon say, Oh, you'll see me again before leaving at about 4am. Just before 5am, Blair Keys, Armand Matthews, Alante Davis, Paris Cameron and Timothy Blanchard were sitting at a table in the dining room, laughing and talking about the events of the night. As they were talking, they heard what sounded like fireworks going off. In the split seconds before they realised what was happening, they thought it might be Lance Atterbury playing a prank. Blair Keyes was facing the doorway and saw a man pointing a gun at the group. The shooter was wearing a black ski mask and a black skull cap. Blair immediately ran into the bathroom to his left as the man continued to shoot. Blair said that the man never spoke. Blair could hear Paris Cameron screaming, and when the shot stopped, Blair saw blood beginning to seep through the drywall. Paris Cameron and Alante Davis were slumped against the other side. Armand Matthews and Timothy Blanchard had run down to the basement. Armand thought they were safe, but Timothy suddenly motioned to his chest. Armand could see that Timothy was bleeding profusely from underneath his shirt. Blair came out of the bathroom and could not find Alante's pulse, so he tried to help Paris and call 911. Paris was shaking, 
and there was so much blood that Blair could not tell where her injuries were. When Blair Keyes saw the flashing lights outside, he ran to meet the officers. Police officers went to the BP gas station to review the surveillance footage captured in the hours before the shooting. After releasing an image from the footage to the media, the police were informed the suspect's name was Devon Robinson, an 18-year-old who lived on the street behind the gas station. Project Greenlight in Detroit meant that a great deal of the east side was covered by surveillance cameras in an effort to reduce crime rates and assist any police investigations. Devon Robinson was recorded by gas station cameras several times. At 2.40am, he first met Paris Cameron and Alante Davis. In the time between meeting them and going to the house, he was seen pacing up and down the street before throwing his hands into the air and walking in the direction of Devonshire Road. At around 4am, he was seen heaving and gagging in the street before buying juice and walking in the direction of his home. When officers spoke with people in the neighbourhood, they were able to uncover more footage. A motion-activated camera was attached to a property across the street. The camera was activated at 5.01am as it captured a person matching the description of the shooter running from the house in the direction of Brunswick Street. On Tuesday, May 28th, Three days after the shooting, investigators went to Devon Robinson's house on Buckingham, but they were told he had left over the weekend. He had in fact left the morning of the shooting, and his mother had also disappeared. While officers tried to track down Devon Robinson, the victim's families were coming to terms with the loss of such young, vibrant people in such horrific circumstances. Autopsies were performed at the medical examiner's office by Dr. Avanesh Gupta, while the deputy chief medical examiner, Dr. Lee Halvati. Alonte Davis had sustained two gunshot wounds. He also had an abrasion on the right side of his lower back. One of the bullets had struck Alonte on the right side of his lower abdomen, but it was lodged in his skin and did not inflict significant damage. A fatal wound was to Alonte's neck. The bullet had penetrated the blood vessels on the right side, including the external jugular and carotid arteries, before passing through the throat, the cervical spine and finally blood vessels on his left before it lodged just beneath the skin on the left side of his neck. Lonte Davis's father had to identify his 21-year-old son's body. Lonte's sister Dasha Robinson said that her brother was full of life. His godfather told Fox 2 Detroit about a celebration of life party the families had planned for June 5th. Al Davis said, It's going to be a party dedicated to how they live their life. They never knew a stranger. We're asking the whole Detroit community to come out 
This would be a good time for everybody to come together and show their support. Timothy Blanchard was formally identified by his older brother. Like the other victims, Timothy was in his early 20s. He had sustained four gunshot wounds, two of which were superficial to the left side of his upper and lower back. One bullet had entered Timothy Blanchard's chest, just to the right of the midline. The bullet had perforated his right lung diaphragm, liver and kidney before it lodged in his lower back. Another bullet entered the left shoulder and travelled through his left lung, aorta and right lung. The bullet fragments were found along the wound track. Pathologists use their ballistics wound knowledge to determine the path a bullet makes when it enters the body. This is determined by examining the size of the wounds and the internal injuries caused as the bullet travels through the body. Entry wounds are generally smaller than exit wounds, which tend to be irregular in shape and show an outward beveling of tissue. Usually the medical examiner will request an X-ray be carried out on the victim's body to locate any bullets or bullet fragments. This gives them a more accurate determination of the bullet's path. Paris Cameron was brought to the hospital in critical condition and placed on life support. When her mother was called to the hospital, she was told that there was nothing they could do for Paris, but as the 20-year-old was a registered organ donor, they wanted to wait before loved ones agreed to switch off life support. As a result, Paris's autopsy was not concluded until several days after her death. She had sustained four gunshot wounds. There was also a laceration found above her right eyebrow. Two of the wounds were perforating wounds where the bullet had entered and exited the body. They were to the upper left back and left shoulder. These bullets did not hit any organs. However, Paris had been shot in the head twice. One of the bullets which had been fired into the lower back of her head found lodged in her scalp. The other had entered the left side of her head just above her ear. This bullet went through the skull and brain and exited on the right side. This wound resulted in an extensive skull fracture, bleeding on the brain and brain swelling. Paris Cameron had come out as gay when she was 13 years old. Around a year before she was shot dead, she had begun her transition, receiving unfaltering support from her mother. Janice Poindexter, the transgender victim's advocate for Equality Michigan, spoke to Pride Source about the victims. She said that Alante Davis had a lot of personality and was really funny and easygoing. Timothy Blanchard was charismatic and loved to chat. Speaking about all three of the murder victims, Janice Poindexter said, they were all definitely well received in the community. Alonte was really supportive of Paris and her transition. Whenever you saw one of them, you saw the other, literally. They were very close. 
the police believed the shooting, a completely unprovoked attack, was a hate crime. Alana McGuire, president of the Fair Michigan Justice Project, told the media, This case illustrates the mortal danger faced by members of Detroit's LGBTQ community. After an anonymous tip came in on June 5th, the police arrived at an address on Claremont Avenue, the other side of the city, and arrested Devon Kareem Robinson. Robinson was taken to the Detroit Police Department where he was interviewed by homicide detectives Richard Hauser and Ira Todd. In the interview room, Robinson said he did not really know why he was brought in by the police. Detective Todd told Robinson that they knew he was responsible for a triple homicide on Devonshire. The detective said that they knew exactly what happened based on electronic videos, wiretaps and DNA evidence. Still, they wanted to hear it directly from Robinson. They told Robinson that their task force was granted special jurisdiction technology allowed them to scan the neighbourhood and listen in to conversations. They also said that they were investigating the victims prior to the murders. Detective Todd said that they knew that some horrible things had happened to Robinson in that house before the shooting. It was similar incidents that had led them to investigate the victims. We know some other things that have been cried you know, some things that they did to you that was not cool prior to that. We know that you were intoxicated prior to that. And when they took you back to the house, some other things happened. Okay? So we know exactly what you did. But we want to know why you did what you did. What was your emotional state during that time and night and everything else? You know? So that's what we're here to talk to you about. And, and we know pretty much everything, you know, based on electronic videos. Okay. You know, a lot of people want to talk about some wiretap stuff now. Some things that was going on with these three individuals that you don't know that was going on. We were investigating them for some other stuff. Some similar stuff that they did to me as well. But we had an investigating status. And we know they're involved in a whole lot more stuff than you even know about. Okay. But just like they took advantage of you, we understand they took advantage of some other people. There's some other complaints out about these guys. The detectives told Devon Robinson that the officers understood. Robinson was likely under stress after being taken advantage of by the victims. If Robinson was honest and cooperative, they could advocate for him when they spoke to the prosecutor. Detective Todd said to Robinson that he could open up and tell them what happened, as Robinson looked like he wanted to cry. Devon Robinson laughed at the suggestion. Robinson replied that no one in that house took advantage of him. He admitted to meeting Paris Cameron earlier that night, but denied being tricked into coming to the house or being forced to do anything. Robinson said that he never thought Paris was a woman and admitted receiving oral sex from her, but denied anyone else was involved. Robinson then explained that no one knew he was gay and that he did not want his parents to find out like this. That's the thing. Don't nobody know that. 
Don't nobody know what. Huh? Don't nobody know what. Don't nobody know what shit. For you? Yeah. Okay. Don't nobody know. Not even my mama. Okay. Not my pops. Nobody. So, okay. So don't nobody know what you die alone. So, with that being said, that's the point of what we're talking about. Now, if, were you threatened to be exposed? No. That's what I ain't, I ain't mad about. It, it's the thing that everybody's finding out. You don't want people to find out? No, I'm talking about my family, like my mom or my daddy. You don't want them to find out? They're the only people. That you don't want to find out? Why not? Because I haven't told them myself. But I want to feel like, like, I wanted to tell them before. You want to tell them what? That you're down on? Yeah, but. Can't. You want to tell them before this time happened? Yeah. Okay. So now you feel you have to tell them, but you can't. But, but it's important, as I start off, nobody can judge you. Right. Nobody. Detective Hauser consoled Devon Robinson and told him that his parents would love him no matter what, although remarked that the murders were big news because it was a, quote, LGBT thing. The detectives told Robinson that they believed he was afraid of being outed and shot the people in the house out of anger and fear. Robinson completely denied any part in the shooting and said that the only reason he was in that house was because he was gay. Devon Robinson was arrested and charged with three counts of homicide. Spokeswoman for Wayne County Prosecutor's Office told the media that the relationship between the accused and the victims was unclear. It was believed that he had targeted them, quote, strictly on being part of the LGBTQ community. Local 4 News quoted Prosecutor Kim Worthy as saying, The alleged actions of this defendant are disturbing on so many levels, but the fact that this happened during Pride Month adds salt into the wound. We must remain ever vigilant in our fight to eradicate hate in Wayne County and beyond. In 2009, former President Barack Obama signed into law the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. This expanded on the hate crime legislation that was already in place to include crimes against someone because of their gender, sexuality, gender identity, sexual orientation or disability. The act defines a hate crime as when a defendant chooses a victim because of their race, religion, nationality, ethnicity, gender, sexuality or disability. It removes some of the legal barriers that previously hindered hate crime prosecutions. It was named after two hate crime victims, James Byrd Jr. and Matthew Shepard. James Byrd Jr. was a black man lynched by three white men in Jasper, Texas, in a horrific racially motivated murder. Matthew Shepard was a 22-year-old university student who was tortured and killed because he was gay. At present, Michigan hate crime law does not cover crimes committed against someone because of their sexual identification or gender identity. 
At this time, a defendant can invoke a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity as a legal justification for committing a crime. In what's known as the LGBT panic defence, or gay panic defence. The gay panic or homosexual advanced defence is often combined with pleas of provocation or self-defence. It is a partial defence, somewhat absolving the defendant of the crime of murder and instead finds them culpable of manslaughter. It asks the jury to find that the defendant's actions were provoked by the victim's sexual orientation or gender identity. It is supposed to excuse the defendant's loss of self-control and their violent reaction, allowing them to argue that their victim's non-violent sexual advance was sufficient provocation to kill them. This stigmatises any behaviour that a defendant believes to be provocative, but only because the behaviour is coming from someone who is part of the LGBTQ community. One of the most notable cases where a gay panic defence was used was by the killers of Matthew Shepard. Both the murder of Matthew Shepard and the murder of James Byrd Jr. occurred in 1998. Although these killings finally put the public's focus on hate crimes, it took eight years for the act to be passed and implemented. Despite Devon Robinson's claim in his interview that he was in fact gay, the murders were believed to be motivated by hate. Robinson was charged with three counts of first-degree murder, two counts of assault with intent to murder, and five counts of the use of a firearm in connection with a felony. The case was assigned to Special Prosecutor Jamie Powell Horowitz. Horowitz was with the Fair Michigan Justice Project, which worked with the police to combat serious crimes against the LGBTQ community. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The trial began on March 10th, 2020. In her opening address to the jury, Prosecutor Jamie Powell Horowitz detailed the state's case against Devon Robinson. The prosecutor told the court about the events of the early morning of May 25, 2019. A group of friends were having a house party. They met the defendant when they briefly visited a gas station. After Robinson received oral sex from a number of those in attendance, he was said to have a blank look on his face, almost as if he was disgusted with himself. CCTV was presented that showed his hesitation about following Paris Cameron to Devonshire Road. Robinson could be seen pacing on the street, 
before throwing his hands up and walking in the direction of the party. After he left, he was seen gagging and retching outside the gas station before walking towards his house on Buckingham, connected to Devonshire Road by Brunswick Street. The police had obtained surveillance footage from a property across the street which showed him going home, but less than an hour later the same camera picked up a figure dressed in dark clothing, leaving the property in the direction of the address on Devonshire Road. Just as the 911 calls were being made by Blair Keyes and Armand Matthews, a camera on a property nearby recorded a figure running from the house in the direction of Brunswick Street. Just moments later, the camera across from Robinson's property captured someone walking back into the house. The next day, Robinson and his mother left. Robinson moved around, squatting in properties on the other side of the city. In an interview with Homicide Detectives, Devon Robinson denied any involvement in the shooting, but admitted to being in the house and receiving oral sex from Paris Cameron. It was an anonymous tip that led to his arrest, but recorded calls from the Wayne County Jail after his incarceration proved that he was purposefully hiding out. The calls also revealed that he had told the investigators he was gay in response to the news reports about the shooting being a hate crime. Prosecutor Jamie Powell Horowitz spoke about the call made between mother and son. You're going to get some calls in this case. I'm going to a few days later, and I want you to listen to the tone of these calls. Every time that you make a call from the Wayne County Jail, you are told that you're being monitored and recorded. Every time. Okay? So every time the defendant makes a call, he and his family members know, I'm listening. We're listening, and we're going to get this call, this emotional call, on June 15th, June 12th, and June 15th. So June 12th, you're going to see this this call with his mother, kind of this dance. I know, I don't know, I know, I don't know. And mom's yelling at him. Everything making me, everything making me mad, saying you effing with ends, meaning you're messing with men. She uses the N-word, I'm not going to use that word. And you're going to hear the defense say, yeah, that pisses me off. Mom's screaming, yeah, they're making it seem like a hate crime. And you hear the defendant, Mom, that, that hate crime's going to be out the window. I, I told him I was gay, so that hate crime's going to be out the window. And Mom kind of stops. Oh, oh, well, you know if you are, you can come to me, right? No, and you're going to hear him say, I'm not, I'm not. Now, Mom is actually a lesbian. Mom lives with a woman, okay? But you're going to hear her kind of stop and be taken aback, and she's at first yelling at him about messing with men. Then you hear the defendant talk about his mother's yelling at him, you know, this could be a life sentence, a penalty for murder, and giving the defendant trying to stop him. He's like, if it comes down to it, you know, like 25 years, and the mom cuts him off again. And she's going on and on. And then you're going to hear the defendant complaining about his location, somebody giving him up where he was. And you're going to hear mom yelling at him for wearing those red shorts on the porch when he's supposed to be laying low. Devin Robinson's mother would go on to berate him for standing out on a porch in red shorts, which proved she knew her son was hiding out. Mother and son were also concerned about a statement given to the police by the woman that lived with them. Sabrina Bates had told the authorities that Robinson and his mother had left the house on Saturday, May 25th, 
and that people had called at the address to collect clothes for Robinson while he was hiding out. Bates also said that Robinson had been using her cell phone for a week before the shooting. Analysis of pings from the device showed that Robinson was awake before the shooting as he tried to call his mother around the time someone left the house and walked in the direction of the party. Robinson's DNA had been found on Timothy Blanchard, proving that he had physical contact with more than one person. The prosecutor asked the jury to listen to the testimony from the surviving witnesses and to find Devon Robinson guilty on all counts. Robinson's defence attorney Evan Callanan Jr. also gave a passionate opening statement. He greeted the jury and said he hoped they were all awake. Attorney Callanan noted that he considered it a privilege to represent the defendant. He told the jury that the American Constitution grants citizens certain rights and said that there was no justice system equal to or better than the US justice system. Callanan said that he and his client could spend the entire trial playing checkers if they wanted to, because the burden of proof fell on the state. He asked the jury to remain impartial in a trial Callanan said was packed full of emotion. You know, and see, this case, I'm here to tell you, it's packed full of emotion, right? I mean, we've got TV cameras, we've got three victims, we've got uh, sex involved. This thing is, uh, I'm sure, not part of your everyday life. All right? So right now, it's time to put both feet on the ground, take a deep breath. We're here, we're real, we're relaxed, and we're going to make them prove it. Evan Callanan Jr. tried to discredit the witnesses and implied there were other possible suspects at the party. According to the defence attorney, the gathering had been attended by up to 15 people. There were numerous arguments and sexual activity. During his address, Callanan became emotional as he said, These are very serious charges, and we've got to depend on you to sort it out and get real with this, and make them prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And we hope that at the conclusion of these proceedings, that you find the defendant not guilty. The first witnesses to take the stand were those people who identified the victims. Lonte Davis's father, Paris Cameron's mother, and Timothy Blanche's brother. Dr. Lee Halvate, the deputy chief medical examiner in Wayne County, also spoke about the post-mortems performed on the victims and the cause and manner of their death. For most of the trial, Devon Robinson was sitting at the defence table, facing away from the witnesses as they spoke. Leckies testified at length about the events of that night and early morning. All I hear is Paris scream and gunshot. I hear blood coming through the walls and yeah. What do you do? I just sat there and waited for him to walk out the house. I was scared. 
Did you hear the shooter leave? Yes, I heard the door closing. I walked back out there, and then I um, instantly called 911. I'm running down to, while I'm calling 911, I'm running down to um, the basement, and I see Timothy on the floor in the basement. Is Armand in the basement also? Armand was trying to stop the bleeding from Armand. So as I saw him helping Timothy, I went back upstairs and he helped Sam Paris. After the shooting, Blackies had told the police in a follow-up interview that he believed the shooter was the same man that had come to the house that night, Devon Robinson. Blair said that although the man was wearing a mask, he felt as though their eyes and their complexion were the same as the defendant's. During cross-examination by the defence attorney, Blair Keyes was visibly irritated. Much of his testimony had already been interrupted by defence attorney Evan Callanan Jr. The exchange became so heated it resulted in Blair being escorted from the courtroom. Under the prosecution's redirected questioning, Blair Keyes was asked why he had become upset when questioned by the defence attorney. He said it was difficult to talk about losing his friends. Attorney Evan Callanan Jr. interrupted again to object to Blair's answers. Tiffany Brank, the woman who fired a warning shot when the group were playing music loudly outside of her home during the late evening before the shooting, corroborated the prosecution's timeline of events. Brendan Suttle's mother also confirmed that her son and Lance Atterbury had come to the house in the middle of the night, and she told them to leave. Armon Matthews, who was in the house at the time of the shooting, testified at the end of the first day of the trial. Armon was asked to identify the defendant who had turned to face him. Armon told the prosecutor, He's looking right at me right now. We're making eye contact. Armand Matthews admitted to participating in a quote, orgy, and arguing with Brendan Suttles afterwards. He also spoke about Devon Robinson leaving the property after receiving oral sex from Paris Cameron and some of the other partygoers. When they left, went back in the house, and mind you, I didn't see this young man leave, but before he left, he acknowledged everybody and everything, and he seemed really shook. Like he was, the, the, the energy I got off of him was not friendly energy. He gave off energy, like, you know, like he was disgusted. Did you say goodbye to the defendant at all? I did. You know, I told him, you know, just take care of whatever. He said, oh, y'all, let's see me again. I didn't know what that was about. We'll see you again. I didn't know what that was about. After the defendant left, what are you all doing in the house? We waited for Lance and Brennan to come back, and we were chilling, talking about regular stuff, laughing, having a good time. Had Blair lost his wallet earlier? Blair did lose his wallet. Um, when we looked for it, we couldn't find it in the house, so Tay, Paris, and Timothy, they all went back to the gas station and found it and brought it back. Is this after the defendant left the house? This is after. And when do they come back to Devonshire with Blair's wallet? They do. What are you doing now? We're sitting there and next to, like literally, this is all we were doing was sitting there and that's when a gunshot took place. Mamon Matthews' call to 911 was played to the jury. He is hysterical as he tries to stop the bleeding from Timothy Blanche's chest wound. Mamon can be heard praying while putting pressure on the injury 
before he calls out to the police as they enter the home. On the call, the officers can be heard instructing Armand to put his hands up. He testified at the trial that he complied because he was afraid of being shot. But Armand believed that Timothy suffered the most blood loss because he was made to take his hands off the gunshot wound. Brendan Suttles and Lance Atterbury both testified and corroborated the witnesses' accounts of the night. They had left the party, but returned to find the property where Lance lived surrounded by police officers. Detective Richard Hauser spoke about his interview of Devon Robinson following the arrest and he explained why Robinson was told that the detectives were investigating the victims for criminal behaviour when they were not. The officers attempted to elicit a confession from Robinson, leading the defendant to believe they had more evidence than they actually did. This tactic is legal in the United States. It was a point of contention when Detective Hauser was cross-examined by the defence attorney. Sabrina Bates, the woman who lived with Robinson and his mother at the Buckingham property, also addressed the court. In contrast to her earlier statement to the police and at the preliminary hearing, she downplayed the fact that Robinson and his mother had moved out after the shooting and said that it was due to a family emergency. Audio from the calls Robinson made to family members while in county jail were played to the jury. This is a call from and paid for by an inmate at Wade County Jail. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. If you don't wish to talk, hang up now. Thank you for using CalMate. Hello. Man, they trying to make it seem like it's a hate crime. And I'm like, motherfuckers, man, man this shit's so fucking crazy. Dog, I work with these motherfuckers. People, a girl walked up to me saying she's been knowing you forever. And she couldn't, and like I told her, you can't, y'all can't just say my son pulled the fucking trigger. You feel me? Right. You said a girl said walked up to you and said she knew me forever. Yeah. And she know how I am. People who know me know how I am. On June 12th and June 15th, Devon Robinson had spoken with his mother and uncle about the case. He implied that he had told the police he was gay to avoid any potential hate crime charges, clearly unaware of the existing legislation. Robinson also cried on the call and said he believed someone had told the police where he was hiding. When Robinson and his mother were speaking about Sabrina Bates and the fact that she had spoken to the authorities... Mallory Robinson made veiled threats and said that no one was afraid of Sabrina. As the prosecution finished presenting their case, the defence also rested. Prosecutor Jamie Powell Horowitz told the jury that the murders were self-hate crimes. 
The state believed that Devon Robinson was so ashamed and disgusted with himself after receiving oral sex from multiple people. Robinson returned to the house with a gun, with the intention of silencing those who could out him. Let's talk about the scene in this case before we get to the cause. We know that the defendant wore a mask, okay? Now, does this mean that every time a shooter disguises himself, that we can never know for sure who it was? No, that is absolutely not the case. You don't get to put on a mask and get away with mass murder. You have to follow the evidence. You have to do the work. You have to listen to what the witnesses tell you and all the other evidence in this case. So what kind of evidence, what kind of physical evidence would you expect from a scene like this? All right, the defendant comes in through the front door and is just shooting. He's not touching anything at that time. He's not doing anything other than shooting and then getting out and getting back home. The prosecutor concluded her statement. This happened because the defendant didn't want anyone to know about his sexuality. He went home that night and he knew that they were all going to be talking. It was all going to be all over the neighborhood. You weren't even Armand until you moved out of that neighborhood because he didn't feel like he could be a gay male in that neighborhood. And I know you're going, to, you're going to hear about how the mom has a girlfriend and how the sister has a girlfriend too. The reality is, for this family, it is different from them. And you hear that from the defendant's mouth. It's the thing. Everybody was going to know. Everybody was going to find out. My mom was going to find out. Dad was going to disown me. He came home that night right after this happened, after spitting and gagging, and went into his house and didn't know what to do because this is about, this oral sex with multiple men is about to be all over the neighborhood. And so he makes an even stupider decision to get dressed in black clothing, head down towards Brunswick, over to Devonshire, kill all these people, come running back out towards Buckingham, back in the house. Again, you would have to believe, after all of this, that some random person went for an eight-minute walk at the exact time of the shooting. That's not what happened. This is the defendant. The defendant did this. And then after doing that and realizing all the police that were coming to the neighborhood got out of there, and his family circled around him, and they did not cooperate, and they did not talk to the police, and they did not say anything to anyone until someone gave a tip to the police, and they found him hiding out on the other side of the city. And then he tells you about how he didn't want people to find out. And he only admits to things when he believes that the officers are telling him the truth, like about finding DNA. But he'll only admit what he has to, right? Because he's not going to talk about having oral sex with other people in that house, even though his DNA is on Timothy Blanchard. And then it's him on these jail calls, repeatedly. What is the family saying? We're going to pray for the best. We're going to wait and see what they have. Defendant saying, if it comes down to it, I'll consider a 25-year plea. I'm sorry I put y'all through this. I'm going to have one more time to address you. And when I do, I'm going to ask you to hold the defendant responsible for killing three people in that house and for almost killing two others. Thank you. In his closing statement, Devon Robinson's attorney, Evan Callanan Jr., said that the party was over the top. The jury were not there to judge the morality of the defendant and the victims based on their sexuality, but to determine whether the state had proved the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Callanan said that the witnesses did not see the shooter's face. The prosecution's proposed motive of Robinson being ashamed was untrue, because Robinson had openly admitted to being gay in his police interview. 
The defence attorney said Robinson only ran because he felt like he would be blamed as he was the last one to leave the party. According to the defence, the prosecution had not proven Robinson was the shooter. Prosecutor Horowitz offered a rebuttal. The only evidence in this case points exactly to the defendant. Not asking you to guess. It's a fact that Blair says it's him. It's a fact there's a video, that eight-minute video. It's a fact that the defendant flees. It's a fact that the defendant's family knows that he's on the land. It's a fact that his mom is upset that he went out on that porch and got himself caught. It's a fact that she's saying to him, we're just going to pray for the best. It's a fact that the uncle's like, oh, you heard what Sabrina said? Is it good or bad? And if you go back and listen to that call, you're going to hear him say early in that call, you can't, I know you can't really talk right now. That's because it's being recorded. But they're still trying to assess what we have. It is a fact that everyone who talks to the defendant on the call, his family, those people complicit in him hiding out, are worried about the evidence in this case. Now, if you go back there and say that this is not enough, I want you to listen to what the defendant himself says. If it comes down to it, 25-year plea, I'm sorry for putting y'all through this. Mom, we're going to hope for the best. And I want you to think about that interaction with, with her and Sabrina. She can't be a witness because she's here with me when that's happening. Wouldn't this have been a good time to say, I know it wasn't you, son, because you were here with me too. Or the defendant could say, I was at home with y'all. They can't say that because he's the one taking that eight-minute walk over to Devonshire to kill all of those people. So you can't discount the identification. You can't discount the video. You can't discount the fact that he took off. And you can't discount the fact that when you listen to those calls, that family knew exactly what happened. And they are counting on the fact that they can play for fools. Three people lost their life in this case. Yeah, we want the right person. Because two people survived and had to be brave enough to come in here and face him down. So I'm going to ask that you go in there and do all the work. Look at all the evidence in this case. And hold the defendant responsible for first-degree premeditated murder for Alonzo Davis, for Timothy Blanchard, for Paris Cameron, two counts of assault with intent to murder for Blair, and for Armand, who watched their friends die and tried to save their lives, and for those companion counts of selling firearms, for using a firearm in the commission of those murders and assaults. Thank you. On March 17, 2020, the jury returned with their verdict. Devon Robinson was found guilty on all charges. Robinson was sentenced to three life terms for the murders of Paris Cameron, Timothy Blancher, and Alante Davis. Robinson was also handed consecutive sentences of 10 to 20 years for both counts of assault with intent to murder for Blair Keyes and Armand Matthews, and two years for the use of a firearm in connection with a felony. Alana McGuire, the president of the Fair Michigan Justice Project, again spoke to the media following sentencing. She said, Devon Robinson murdered three members of Detroit's LGBTQ community in cold blood and wounded two others. Fair Michigan applauds the Detroit Police Department, Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, and the Fair Michigan Justice Project team for bringing this murderer to justice. This conviction and life in prison sentence sends a clear message that crimes against our community can result in maximum penalties under the law. 
Devon Robinson was just 19 years old when he was convicted and sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison. His victims were just aged between 20 and 21. Crimes based on sexual orientation and gender identity make up approximately 10% of the reported hate crimes in Michigan. There is no hate crime legislation in place at present that covers sexual orientation and gender identity. For decades, members of the LGBTQ community have fought for equality. Many are still faced with discrimination and an increased likelihood of becoming a victim of violence, particularly black transgender women like Paris Cameron. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Maybe. Script editing, additional writing, illustrations and production direction by Rosanna Fitton. Narration editing and production direction by Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.